Hey, Cornerstone. Good Lord's Day to you all. You already know who I am because I've been introduced. <laughs> but I'm an extremist. It is my extreme privilege to present God's word to you this morning. Are we all ready to listen closely and respond rightly to his living words? During the past five weeks, we've been introduced to the good news of Matthew as he prepared his original audience and us for the coming of Jesus Christ as the king into the human world. We are also reminded that Jesus' mission was and still is making disciples, those who will apprentice with him in which, um, with Jesus. In the next few weeks, we will have more to say about apprenticing with Jesus. But this is the last week in which we will be looking at the preparation for the beginning of Jesus' ministry in first century Palestine. As we've already seen in the first two chapters, past five weeks, Jesus' birth and infancy were surrounded with mystery, misunderstanding, and even intrigue. But we've already learned much about who he is. He's the son of Abraham. He's the son of David, promised to the Jewish people, but benefiting the entire world. And he is the certified king of the Jews. His birth name, Jesus, even tells us of his impact. He saves his people from their sins as Emmanuel, God with us. So let's look at the passage. I'm going to read the first four verses, but not the entire passage. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. When this chapter begins, chapter 3, almost three decades have passed since one took place in Matthew chapter 2. Jesus is still virtually unknown. The Magi who came to visit him after his birth, they've gone back to the east. Herod, the one who tried to kill him, he's dead. And basically, Jesus is kind of an unknown. He's somebody who's just living as a, a carpenter's son, a sinless carpenter's son, but he's living as a carpenter's son, and there's really nothing going on, and then suddenly, this voice appears in the wilderness, and John, as a herald, proclaims the king's impending arrival. John's preaching, literally the word preaching that we use, is the work of a herald, one who precedes a ruler and then publicly announces his arrival and his expectations. You'll notice that this passage says very little about John the Baptist. 
John isn't seeking the limelight. He appears in the wilderness instead of in front of the TV cameras. Of course, they weren't very good in those days either. His appearance and his diet, the camel's hair, the leather belt, the food of locusts and wild honey, they're only noteworthy in the sense that he would never win a popularity contest. John was so unlikely a candidate to herald the king's arrival that the more cultured class would probably shrink back in disgust from him. He is wearing camel hair. Who does that? Even the common people would not naturally be drawn to him. But in a sneak preview of what Matthew writes later, Jesus says of John, Really? Did you expect to see someone dressed in soft clothing in the wilderness? They're found in king's houses. But for those who knew the Old Testament, a striking parallel to the prophet Elijah would emerge. His rustic appearance was like Elijah's, and the power of his prophetic message was compelling. Indeed, Jesus later says, if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. No, the emphasis is not on John, but on his message. He was only a herald, preparing the way for the arrival of the king. And we need to see why this was so eventful. Remember, we as the readers of John's Gospels, or of, excuse me, of Matthew's Gospel, we already know the full story. We know that Jesus is the arriving king. But put yourself in the place of these people in the first century. The people who were coming to John did not know who this king was yet. And even John didn't know. Look at what he says about himself in John 131. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And of course, next week we're going to take a look at Jesus' baptism, and so you'll get a lot more of the details then. But up until the time that Jesus actually came to John for baptism, John didn't know that he was the Messiah. And the people who came to John to recognize and to, to rejoice in the king's arrival, they didn't know who the king was yet. This entire passage revolves around two very sharp contrasts. In verses 2 through 10, people have two very different responses to John's message. And then in verses 11 and 12, two very different ranks in life and two different ministries are contrasted. John the Baptist compares himself to the arriving king. So let's look first at the message that causes these two different reactions. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent, for the kingdom of heaven 
is at hand. First, we have to understand what the kingdom of heaven is. Now, it's interesting that John, or John, I keep saying John. Well, it is John the Baptist. <laughs> Matthew the Gospel, John the Baptist. Okay. Matthew uses the term the kingdom of heaven instead of using the term the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is a term that's used throughout the other Gospels. So why is Matthew saying it's the kingdom of heaven that's at hand? Well, it's possible that he was catering to the Jewish preference not to say the name of God. The Jewish people would be inclined to say heaven instead of God. They knew it meant the same thing, but they wanted to be sure that they didn't take the name of the Lord in vain. So that's a possibility. But probably a more important emphasis is that the kingdom of heaven would be in sharp contrast to every earthly kingdom. Does that make sense? I mean, who would you rather have ruling over you, an earthly ruler or the king of heaven? And so that's why probably John used, or Matthew used the expression, the kingdom of heaven, and, and it had those words in John's math. Sometimes it helps to know what the kingdom is by knowing what it is not. <laughs> the kingdom of heaven is not a geographic region or a nation. It's not like the United States or Canada or Great Britain. It's also not like modern monarchs may be. Think of Queen Elizabeth II. She's been in the news a lot lately because of how influential she was. And yet, it is said of Queen Elizabeth, she reigned but did not rule. She was a figurehead. She was well-loved. She was important to the people of the British Isles. But she did not rule. That's not the way their government is set up. And that is the way that modern monarchs often are. Not all of them, but some of them. But the biggest contrast, the thing that the kingdom of heaven is not, it's not a democracy. Think about it. What does democracy mean? The people rule, right? And that's exactly what the kingdom of heaven is not. It is not the people ruling. It is God ruling. Jesus taught us this in Matthew chapter 6 when he asked us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Here again, you see that contrast between the heavenly kingdom, the heavenly ability to do God's will and the earthly kingdoms, which I'd have to say fail miserably. The kingdom of heaven is best understood as kingship, the sovereign, effective rule of God over all of life. So what is it that would make God's rule both sovereign and desirable? Because let's face it, we've read about and sometimes we feel like we're experiencing what it's like when someone tries to be sovereign 
but their efforts are not really good. But in, in the case of the kingdom of heaven, God's rule is desirable because of the perfection of his goodness and benevolence. It is desirable because of his justice and impartiality. It's desirable because of his wisdom in decision-making. Don't those sound like things that you'd like to have your ruler doing <laughs> instead of what we often see today? God's rule is also sovereign because he has absolute authority over everything. Nobody can tell him what to do. Nobody can resist him. He also has limitless power to implement his will. So whatever it is that he decides to do in his good will, he is capable of doing and nothing and no one can stop him. We sing this in a song. The, uh, what a beautiful name it is, has these words in it. You have no rival. You have no equal. Now and forever, God, you reign, right? That's the sovereign rule of God. That's what's desirable. And that's what the kingdom of heaven is all about. I'll take his heavenly kingship over all earthly rule. Could any earthly ruler compete with that? So to summarize, the kingdom of heaven is the sovereign, effective rule of God over all of life, and this kingship or rule of God is arriving in Jesus. Now we can address why John call, cries out, repent. Now the meaning of repent, I'll explain a little later, so it's coming. John cries out that repentance is necessary using these words from Isaiah, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And for those of us in the 21st century, we're going, what, what is he talking about? This is from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. And as we were reminded just two weeks ago, the reader or listener is encouraged to keep reading in the book of Isaiah. We only see verse 3 in John's message, but if you look at verses 4 and 5 as well, you can see that there's a lot more to explain what is meant by prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So look in the next verse. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And as a result of that, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The way or path of an approaching king must have all obstacles removed. Imagine if you were a part of an ancient receiving of, of a king. The king is coming, and you don't want the king to have to go over a road that is so rough, and it kind of reminds me of the road to our place in Colorado. <laughs> 
you've got lots of low places where you can dip down, you know, and you've got the high places that you have to either go over or try to go around. It's, it can be very awkward, and a king is not going to put up with that. And so every obstacle needs to be cleared away, smoothed out, so that the king has no obstacles to his arrival. And that's what this passage is expressing. If the, if the arriving king is really this desirable, we will be eager to speed his arrival by removing every obstacle. The lives of those who considered themselves to be God's people contained obstacles to experiencing the good reign of God. So we ask, okay, so what are the obstacles? Well, keep reading in the book of Isaiah and you come to chapter 59, verses one and two. Look at what he says. The Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. That's a serious obstacle. The iniquities, the sins, the acts of rebellion, the, the attitudes of people are wrong. And that those obstacles need to be removed. Jesus goes even further. In Luke 19, 14, he's telling a parable about himself. And he says, his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. Those words have echoed in my ears for decades. That's a really strong statement. That's an indication that the human race is in a bad position before God. His citizens, the people that he made, the people that he came to, both the Jewish people and the non-Jewish people who were not considered his people, all of them would have risen up against him and said, we do not want this man to reign over us. You ever feel that way? I mean, hopefully it's not the style of your life. But every time that we rebel against something that God says that we should be doing, aren't we saying that in essence? I want to be in control. I want to reign. I don't want him to reign over me, at least not in this. I hear echoes of these words continually in American politics. No matter who is elected, because at root, we Americans don't want anyone telling us what to do, unless we agree with it. But not to pick on our own nation exclusively, this is the attitude of the entire human race that they've always had towards those who rule us, whether humans or God. The words of Jesus that we just read 
reflect self-destructive opposition to Jesus' good rule. It's like we're treating him as if he were no different than some human ruler. And I know all you have to do is listen to the news and lots of people have lots of complaints about whoever is ruling over them, right? Look at this description of the rule of Jesus that's in the book of Isaiah in chapter 11. It was just last week that Christian told us about the branch. Remember it said that Jesus was called a Nazarene and Nazar means branch? Well, in chapter 11, right after it's talking about the branch are these verses. Listen to the kind of rule that the king is going to have. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Anybody want a king like that? That sounds like the best news possible. I want you to see with me that this is what John was announcing. The coming of this king is the fulfillment of these words. The fulfillment of somebody who's going to come and finally do the right thing. This is why John cried out, Repent! The entire human race is determined to turn our own way in defiance of Jesus' good and just rule. Could we do a better job of ruling than this? Could we even come close to this? So then, what does it mean to repent? I said we'd get there eventually. Literally, repentance is a change of mind. But the consequence of a genuine change of mind is an appropriate change of life. In the Bible, true repentance manifests itself in turning from sin to God. It is never viewed as a one-time act, but as an ongoing attitude towards God. This is critical to understand as we're about to see the contrast between two responses to John's call to repent. This is the message that John gave. This is what he called out that people had to do was to repent. Now, how did people respond to John's call to repent and what were the consequences? From Matthew's account, we see that there are three parties who came to John. You got the multitude of Jewish people who came from all the surrounding regions. That's in verse 5. You have many Pharisees who were the Jewish popular religious leaders and Sadducees, the Jewish temple-based priestly leaders. And that's in verse 7. On the one hand, multitudes who came to him in the wilderness 
were being baptized by him and confessed their sins. This is the appropriate initial response to prepare them for the king's arrival as their ruler. It was an act of obedience prescribed by the king and outwardly indicated submission to his rule. It was also symbolic of inward cleansing, the washing away of the sins which they confessed. And by the way, this washing, they would have been familiar with this in some ways because the requirements of the law of Moses required people to be cleansed ceremonially when various things would happen to them so that they could come back into the community and be a part of the worshiping community in the temple. So they would have been somewhat familiar with this idea of washing, although baptism may have been a brand new concept to them. But this baptism was also intended to be the beginning of a changed way of living, to be followed by appropriate changes in their behavior as they returned from the wilderness to their everyday life. And we see in the Gospel of Luke that the people asked John when they came to him, what shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. Whoever has food is to do likewise. So there you have one group of people, they're saying, okay, how should our lives change to be in line with this coming king who's going to rule us? And John gives them a helpful, practical answer. Tax collectors came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you're authorized to do. <laughs> oh, that would have been easy. But you know, we're reminded of the fact that tax collectors were included in the 12 apostles. Tax collectors like Zacchaeus were said to be children of Abraham by Jesus. So some of them responded to this challenge. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. Okay, now we have a real practical, hands-on way of understanding what repentance might mean. It's not limited to those three things that you've just seen, but those are examples of the kinds of ways that people were expected to change so that they would be ready to be ruled by this good king who is coming. But with all that, the baptism that these people underwent was not a guarantee of forgiveness. It was the outward sign of what should reflect an inward change, but it could not cause inward change. And the easiest way to explain that is what happened to me. As a young believer who had very little understanding of this idea that I was to be obedient to Jesus, I was challenged to be baptized I finally did it, but I did it because of peer pressure. People around me were pestering me because I wasn't baptized. They go, okay, so I just did it. You can guess how much that meant to me. You can guess how much that meant to God. 
because I was doing it for entirely the wrong reasons. A few years later, when I realized that obedience was not something that was optional, and it was not something that I could just play at outwardly, I got baptized again. <laughs> Actually, I've been baptized three times, but that's another story. <laughs> but I got baptized again because I knew that that's what Jesus was calling me to do. And I wanted to obey him at that point. Peer pressure didn't matter at that point. It was just what Jesus thought. It was just what he required. We'll see John explain this contrast between the outward sign and the inward reality, inward change, a little bit later. And next week, because it's all about Jesus' baptism, you'll learn a lot more about baptism. So I'm not going to try to answer all those questions today. But I think that this is enough that we can see what was going on. So on the other hand, on the one hand, you have the people who came and were baptized and confessed their sins. But on the other hand, many of the Pharisees and Sadducees came to his baptism. And he said to them, you brood of vipers, how to win friends and influence people. <laughs> who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? John recognized that although they might have seemed neutral towards the events that were taking place, it was a facade. John recognized their hearts, and so he called them what they were, a brood of vipers, people who were dangerous and poisonous to the culture in which they lived. They were moving people away from God rather than to God. And you notice in this passage, it didn't say that they came to be baptized like it did the other group. It just says that they came to his baptism. They were just checking out the event. They were spectators, not participants. So he challenged them to prove their genuineness. He says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. There's a cost involved in true repentance. It must be productive. That's what the word bear fruit means. It means to be productive, to produce something positive. John illustrates it well. A healthy tree bears good fruit. That's the purpose of the owner planting it in the first place. Can you imagine planting a tree, a fruit tree, and then not getting any good fruit? Well, what would you think? That's not good. A diseased tree bears bad fruit and is therefore useless to the owner. He warned them in verse 10, even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. He's ready to swing Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I'll give you three guesses, and the first two don't count as to what being cut down and thrown into the fire was indicating. He, he wasn't exactly holding back in talking to these guys because they were bad news. John also cautioned them not to presume 
upon their status as children of Abraham, thinking they would be safe due to their privileged birthright, they could be replaced by stones. In the Old Testament, also in Isaiah, the people of Israel are actually called stones that are taken out of a quarry. But he's saying to these people, you could be replaced by other stones. And in the New Testament, Peter actually says that we come to him as a living stone, to Jesus, and you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up to, as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Oh, okay, I went too far. <clears throat> this attempt to be neutral towards God's concerns or satisfied with the outward security of belonging to a Christian family or attending a Christian church like Cornerstone, this plagues us today as much as it did these religious people in John's day. The religious leaders shrugged off any need for repentance, presuming that they were automatically safe by being descendants of Abraham. John was not willing to have window dressing in the king's kingdom. But he will. The king will receive genuinely repentant sinners who will simply, radically trust and obey him under his good rule. The question is, are we ready to face the wrath to come with confidence that our hearts and lives are given to the service and honor of King Jesus? Are we among those who come humbly and bear fruit appropriate to genuine repentance, such as by being baptized, like we saw today, confessing our sins, and showing evidence in our lives of being a new creation? Or will that day, that day of judgment, instead provide proof that we had false confidence in something other than having hearts for God. Or equally deadly, that we never move beyond being spectators to Christianity to becoming participating disciples of Jesus Christ. So the, the last contrast, which will... Yeah, here we go. The last contrast is how John compares himself to the coming king. In verse 11, he says, He who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. John, at this point, describes himself as the lowest of slaves, the person who is not even able to carry the sandals of a ruler is considered to be one of the lowest of slaves. And John says, that's what I am in comparison to this king. He is so great. What he is going to do is so spectacular that I am like the lowest of slaves in comparison with him. Then he says, I baptize you with water for repentance. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. 
The very thing that John recognized that he could do was only outward. He says, yeah, I can, I can put you in water. I can go through that symbolic act with you of being cleansed from sin. But the water of baptism doesn't take away your sins. It doesn't change the inward person. Only the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit and fire can do that. Only the one who, who baptizes with the Holy Spirit and fire has the power to change us inwardly so that we have the desire to obey him instead of being rebellious towards him. Finally, the last verse, as the worship team returns to the front, I'd like you to reflect with me on this last statement made by John. We are all confronted with two and only two ultimate choices. These words warn us of an impending sifting. Look at it. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. We got two choices, wheat or chaff. Now, 21st century people probably don't know a whole lot about threshing floors. Todd could tell us about it because he's a hick from Wyoming. <laughs> I'm just a hick from Nebraska, so you know. <clears throat> but the threshing floor was the place where they would remove the, the hard husk that's around the kernels of wheat. They would crush the wheat so that the, the, the husks would fall off, and that was called the chaff. Then the winnowing fork would be used. You'd scoop some of this up. It's the mixed wheat and the chaff. You throw it up in the air, and the wind blows the chaff away, and the wheat, which is heavier, falls back to the ground. You do that enough times, and you clear out all of the useless chaff, and all you're left with is those precious grains of wheat, which is the goal of the harvest. And he's saying, okay, which are you? Which am I? Am I a kernel of wheat to be gathered into his barn, to be protected by him, precious to him? Or am I part of that useless chaff that just gets blown away and burned in the fire? Those are those are serious choices. Which are you? If you are uncertain, but you are concerned, some of us will be up front afterwards to speak and pray with you. The stakes are too high to put off or ignore the reality of Jesus' rule.